This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. The English Heritage Podcast is here with new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe and if you'd like to, give us a rating and a review. Now this week we're heading back to the 1930s and a property that was something of a party palace. Elton Palace and Gardens, nestled in south-east London, is rich in history, with royal residents that include Edward II in the 1300s, to a young Henry VIII in the 1500s, and Charles I, who is the last king to visit before the Civil War. After centuries of neglect, though, Eltham was then leased to millionaire socialites Stephen and Virginia Courtauld in 1933, who remodelled it as an Art Deco mansion that still exists today. Joining me to discuss Eltham's history and the lives of its colourful residents and visitors is Dr Andrew Han, who's the team leader for Properties Historians at English Heritage. Oh, it's lovely to be back. So, Andrew, let's start with Eltham Palace's location. Why was it built there and who was it built for? Well, Eltham has a, an ideal location, really. It's just outside of London, but it's in an area that in the medieval period would have been quite heavily wooded. And so it was perfect for hunting, which was something that most of the kings of the past liked to do. So that was one of its primary purposes. And also it has the advantage of being very close to the main road coming from Dover towards London. And so any dignitary that was coming up from the continent, it was a sort of suitable stopping off point for the king or the royal party to intercept them and, and to meet with them there. So it had multiple benefits. Was it just mainly a property belonging to the royal family of the time? Well, initially the house there was built by a rich courtier called Anthony Beck, who was Bishop of Durham. And at that time, being a bishop didn't just mean that you were a man of the cloth. You were also a major landowner and an important courtier with you know an armed retinue and whatever. So Anthony Beck was really quite a senior person within the establishment. And he built a very large moated manor here, which had a large defensive wall. He also built a substantial hunting park to the west of the moat as well. So it was already a major residence before it came to the attention of the king. And the king in question is Edward I. And he and his son, the Prince of Wales, were regular visitors to Eltham. They were regular guests of, of Anthony Beck. And then in 1305, Beck then presented the palace, it pretty much was by this stage, to the young prince and... Beck continued to live there until his death in 1311, but from that point onwards it became a royal palace. Right, and as we mentioned in the introduction, there's been a lot of esteemed royal names who've been associated with the palace and who have lived there. Can you give us some of the key royal figures over the centuries who would have spent time there? Well, yeah, I mean, virtually every king from Edward II through to Charles I would have spent time there at some point or other. Just to pick out some of the more important kings that spent a lot of time there, we know that Edward III spent much of his youth at Eltham, and he's actually thought to have founded the Order of the Garter, which is the oldest surviving order of chivalry, whilst he was staying at Eltham. And then you have people such as Richard II. He created lots of substantial gardens just beyond the moat in the 1380s. And then, of course, you have Edward IV, who, for him, Elton was his favourite residence, and he's responsible for major building works there, including the Great Hall, which is the major surviving piece of medieval architecture there. And then during Henry VII's reign, that's uh, Henry VIII's father, he basically used Elton as a sort of royal nursery where the young Henry VIII and his siblings grew up. 
And then once Henry, Henry VIII, that is, became king, he again did an impressive uh, amount of building at Eltham, including a new chapel and other improvements, and he laid out a tilt yard, because of course he's famous for his love of jousting. But then when you move on to the sort of later monarchs, later in Henry VIII's reign, he moves the court focus to Hampton Court, his new palace over in West London. And so the succeeding kings and queens, so for instance, Elizabeth I, although she does quite a lot of building work at Eltham, she doesn't spend a huge amount of time there. And by the time James I comes to the throne, it's really being described as in a far state of decay. And so he has to do some repairs, but even he doesn't spend that much time there. And then Charles I is the last king to visit. And when he is executed and the Commonwealth is created, well, parliamentarian troops are stationed at Eltham and billeted there, and they cause quite a lot of damage, ripping lead off roofs and this sort of thing. And really, from then on, the palace goes into steep decline. So its use changes over the centuries gradually, and then, as you say, it sort of falls into decline. Could you sort of highlight some of the major changes that did take place. You mentioned that Edward IV was one of the key contributors to the medieval architecture. The architecture of the palace, it's continually being improved and expanded upon. So at its height in the early 14th century, it can accommodate the entire royal retinue. You know, so close to a thousand people could be accommodated in the two courts. There was an inner court within the moat and then a large outer courtyard as well, which extended almost as far as the modern town centre at Eltham. And this palace is pretty much kept into repair until the Civil War. And then after the depredations of the Civil War, it very quickly falls into disrepair. And the ground there, the palace remains, are leased out to a courtier who decides to build a new house called Eltham Lodge a few hundred yards away. And the the actual ruins of the palace are turned into a farm. And there are pictures in a Turner and amongst others paint pictures showing the great hall at Elton being used as a barn filled with corn and sheep and cattle. So it really did have a, a steep decline at that period. And then later towards the early 19th century, you get two sort of gentlemen's residences built within the, the moat in place of the farm. So you get two smaller houses where once there'd been a palace. And one of those houses incorporates the Great Hall into it, and part of the Great Hall then were used as a sort of indoor tennis court for a time. So it has a sort of chequered history, really, from the 17th century onwards. Even as early as 1828, there are calls in Parliament for its conservation or preservation of the remains, and you get the Office of Works in 1828 installing props to stop the Great Hall roof from collapsing. And then in the early 20th century, there's quite a lot of restoration work undertaken by the Office of Works under Sir Charles Piers, and that helps preserve the ruins that have survived, particularly the Great Hall. He put steel braces in to support the roof. So that's the state it was in when we get to the the 1930s. What's left of it has been put into working order, but it's still very much a ruin rather than a functioning building. Mm. So palatial to pastoral to palatial and almost back again. (laughs) Yeah, you could say that, yes. Let's talk about these courtholds then. Who were they and when and why did they lease the property in the 1930s? Well, the first thing to say is that Stephen and Virginia Courtold are immensely wealthy. They're they're socialites. Their money comes from the textile firm Courtolds Limited, which is really the first company to mass produce artificial silks known as rayon. And they became basically a world-leading producer of these man-made fibres. 
And Stephen is part of the family, but he's not actively managing the business, but he does own a large number of shares, which makes him independently wealthy. And he and Virginia are also great philanthropists. His wife, Virginia, she's they met when Stephen was on holiday in the Alps. He loved mountaineering, and he'd gone on holiday in the Alps, and he met Virginia there. They were married in 1923 in Fiume, just along the Italian coast. And they're very different in character. Stephen is very serious. He's very intellectual. He's a man of few words, is often the way he's described. But he's also very passionate about lots of causes, like mountaineering, his interest in Arctic exploration, the film industry and Ealing Studios. Virginia, on the other hand, is extremely vivacious, temperamental and unconventional. She's described as having a tattoo of a snake on her ankle, which she apparently got as a dare as a teenager. She's very much the complete chalk and cheese between her and Stephen, but they seem to work as a partnership. And together, as I said, they were great philanthropists and keen supporters of the arts and lots of different causes. So, you know, Stephen supports Arctic exploration. As I said, he was a major shareholder in Ealing Studios. He supports the Covent Garden Opera and also the Fitzwilliam Museum. And also, just to give you a sense of quite how wealthy he was, he built a large ice rink called the London Ice Club in 1926 as a birthday present for Ginny. And that could sort of host large ice galas and they held the things like the World Championships there. And Ginny would often host celebrity galas there uh, where she could entertain her fashionable friends. So they would be sort of the celebrities of their day, I guess. And what they were looking for, really, when they came upon Eltham, they were looking for a house that was sort of semi-rural in location, but was near enough to central London so they could get in there for all their sort of charitable activities and entertaining. So Eltham was really a sort of perfect position, just as it had been for the medieval kings centuries before. And it was absolutely perfect for their needs, so they took a 99-year lease from the Crown, they didn't buy Eltham, they, they were just leasing it, but for their purposes this was a perfect arrangement. Yes, it sounds as though that they had a lot of time on their hands to do good things, but also to enjoy their time and enjoy the money that they had from their business. Yes, they certainly did. I mean, the Courtaulds would certainly be described as people of leisure. They didn't have to work, so to speak, so they could devote themselves to all these various activities and to socialising and entertaining because of the fact that they were well connected and they had all these resources, they were able to get involved in things they were passionate about and interested in. I think it's the sort of financial freedom that uh, a lot of us would uh, want to have these days. But anyway, <laughs> uh, what sort of state was the palace in when the courtholds moved in and uh, adopted their lease? And what changes did they make to the property? The office at works had been doing quite a lot of conservation work there in the early 1900s. In 1911 to 14, there'd been a major programme to sort of restore the roof of the Great Hall. But in a sense, it was still a ruin. And you had these two gentlemen's residences that were sort of slightly down at heel. And you had this partially restored Great Hall. So what uh, Stephen and Virginia did was to they brought in a young couple of architects, Celia and Paget, who were sort of up-and-coming architects who were used to working with historic buildings. They were sort of almost what you could describe as the early version of a conservation architect. And they were brought in to create a sort of modern residence which incorporated the palace remains. So the clear instruction that Stephen had been, had been and Virginia had been given is that they could build a new house so long as it preserved all elements of the surviving medieval fabric. So they had to incorporate these into their new house. But what they did was to create what was a thoroughly modern house, had Art Deco interiors and all the latest mod cons, but really integrated, grafted onto the Great Hall of the original 
building. So what they did was they created a building which was very modern on the inside, but on the outside they adopted what you could describe as a Renaissance style inspired by Hampton Court, a sort of quite a austere, sort of classical exterior, which uh, didn't really give you any um, clue into terms of the sort of opulent interiors that you'd find once you went inside. So it was really a combination of old and new. It was taking the best of what survived and adding onto it the latest of new technology and, and new design and style ideas. Mm. Something that caused actually quite a lot of controversy at the time. I mean, there's lots of quotes in the newspaper, people being horrified about what had been done to the medieval palace. And one historian, a chap called G.M. Young, he actually likened the Courtauld's new mansion to an admirably designed but unfortunately cited cigarette factory. So you can sort of get a sense of how, partly because the Courtauld's were seen as sort of new money, so they were seen as, uh, you know, in a way sort of Philistines, you know, they got this medieval, very ancient palace, and they were sort of creating a new sort of party palace on the side of it, and it wasn't everyone's cup of tea. Mm. How much of the property's original features then were retained during that renovation by the Courtaults? Well, they had to retain the Great Hall, which had been, you know, sort of expensively restored. And also there was a, um, a stone bridge which gave access to the site over the moat on the north side, and that had to be retained too. And there were also three 15th century timber-gabled walls to the east of the Great Hall, and these, they were told, had to be incorporated as well. And it turned out that the design that Celine Paget came up with, it didn't fit for them to be incorporated in situ. So the Courtauld's were given permission to dismantle these gables and re-erect them into their new design, which they did. And also, if you go down into the basement of the new house today, you'll see that there are quite a lot of surviving medieval fabric in the basement in terms of walls within the basement area, really thick walls, which are also part of the basement of the original palace buildings. So there's quite a lot incorporated. And also, if you go outside, you'll find that the Courtauld's gardens incorporate the moat and the defensive walls of the medieval palace, which also survive in situ. So both the garden and the house was, to some extent, constrained in the way it was sort of oriented by the uh, the surviving fabric of the medieval buildings. Do you think some of the changes that were acceptable to the Ministry of Works during that period would be acceptable today by the likes of English heritage? I very much doubt it. I think we're far more, should we say, conservative in terms of what we'll allow these days. I, I would very much doubt that something as adventurous and avant-garde as what the Courtauld's were trying to do would have found favour today. I think there would have been stronger calls to, you know, sort of preserve what was left and not to alter it to the same extent. Mm. Uh, I think our attitudes have changed somewhat. Still, it's a time capsule in some respects of the 1930s with all the uh, technological gizmos of that time. I understand some of those were incorporated. Could you give us a flavour of some of those technological aspects that were in the interiors that you can still see today? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Elsom's really quite fascinating to me as, as a, an example of, of a house which is incorporating all the latest technology the 1930s had to offer. I mean, you've effectively got a building which has a lot of features which would be more commonly seen in a hotel or a large public building rather than a private house. And it really does sort of create a sort of sense that you're arriving in a place that is designed for entertaining as opposed to just sort of a family dwelling. Because as you arrive, 
you go in there and there are his and hers cloak rooms either side of the entrance doors. And then across the other side of the entrance hall, you've got a payphone in a cubicle, something you wouldn't expect to find in a, in a normal family home. And then if you look at the bedrooms, most of the guest bedrooms have ensuite bathrooms, and that's pretty much unheard of in the 1930s. And they all have underfloor heating with pipes running under the floors and in the ceilings to provide heat. And also heated towel rails in the bathrooms, you know, sort of really quite, you know, interesting sort of mod cons that you wouldn't expect to see. There's also things like they have synchronised electric clocks, a gramophone in the near to the hall, which has piping linking it to all the other rooms, so you can have piped gramophone music coming through speakers in the other rooms. You've got an internal telephone exchange, which was put in by Siemens, so that you have telephones in lots of different rooms, so you can phone down to the kitchens, for instance, and, and order a drink or order some refreshments. There's a centralised vacuum cleaner, which is in the basement with piping all throughout the building so that you can sort of plug in nozzles into the wall and do your vacuuming that way. There are electric fires in all the bedrooms as well. I could go on and on. It's a very, very (laughs) modern building. Yeah, it sounds, as you say, very much like a hotel setting uh, with all these sort of conveniences and luxury as well. Did the Courtauld's live there all the time? They didn't. I mean, the Courtauld's are very much a family that just love to travel. So although they must have really relished their time they spent at Eltham, they only really spent their sort of spring and summer there. During most winters, they disappeared off on their travels to foreign parts, often on their luxury motor yacht, the Victoria, which was quite a, a thing in itself. It was all Art Deco in style, a bit like a miniature version of the Queen Mary, and it had a crew of 30, and they could accommodate themselves and, and up to six guests. You know, each summer they would go travelling to a different continent. So the first summer when they were at Eltham, so that's 1936, when the, the building was finished, they disappeared off to Africa for four months. So they left it early December and they came back in the beginning of April. And they travelled the whole length of Africa, starting in Egypt and then working their way down to Cape Town. And then they caught a cruise line and then back up to Southampton. The following year, they went round Southeast Asia. So they flew to Ceylon, picked up their motor yacht, the Virginia, and then motored around the Southeast Asian peninsula, taking in Indonesia, Malaya, Vietnam, Burma and all those sort of areas. And Stephen was very keen on his orchids and he would stop off at all these places and collect samples of orchids. Uh, Sounds Darwinian, doesn't it? (laughs) It does, it does, doesn't it? And then the following year, they went round the Americas. So 1938 to 39, they're travelling the Americas. So they start off in Trinidad in December of 38, and then they travel all around South America and then up through North America. It's a bit like a sort of very large-scale road trip, only they're doing part of it by aeroplane, part of it by boat, and part of it by car. Hmm. And then they return from New York on the 6th of April of 1939. So... Yeah, and, and all of this is paid with their vast wealth. It is indeed, yes. I mean, they had their own private plane and obviously their motor yacht. They wouldn't just travel on their own as well. They would take a number of friends with them who were put up all the expenses paid. So if you got in with the courtholds, you could enjoy some fabulous holidays. Yes, there are a lot of people listening to this podcast right now thinking they would love to have lived that life, I think. Let's move on to, obviously, when they came back home again and when they were entertaining. I understand they had a great reputation for being hosts and were really famed for their parties. Can you tell us a bit more about their parties on site at Elton Palace? It was often, you know, sort of a well-known fact that 
the Courtauld's kept open house at Eltham. So in other words, they would constantly be inviting guests over. There was a constant flow of guests, and anyone who came along was told, bring your friends. You know, it was very much anyone was welcome. And they particularly liked inviting younger people. I mean, the Courtaulds, by the time they're here, they're in their 50s, but they liked to be seen as sort of sponsors and giving a leg up to young up-and-coming artists and performers. So they would quite often invite groups of younger people to the house to spend time with them. And it was quite often an eclectic mix of people who were invited to these dinner parties. So it was often bringing together people who were from quite different backgrounds and people who wouldn't always necessarily get on with each other. There's a number of people who've been interviewed for oral history about what these parties were like, and they said that Stephen would often retreat to the library and go and sit in there and read the newspaper if he got bored of the conversation over dinner. So it was a case that not everybody would always get on, but there were these very, very lively parties, and they were the Courtauld's were very, very sociable. They had all these different interests, you know, in exploration, the film industry, archaeology, collecting, ice skating. So you were getting together a really interesting bunch of people. How many people would attend a typical party, do we know? Well, the Courtauld's could accommodate around sort of 16 to 20 guests at most, but the parties would sometimes have more because some people would just come up for the evening because they were close enough to London that you could drive up for the night and then leave afterwards. But they would usually have 10 or so guests staying over. Who would then stay the whole weekend, sort of thing? Who would then stay the whole weekend, yes, indeed, yeah. Right. So when they arrived, they'd be given a guest room, I presume? Yeah, I mean, the usual scheme of things was that guests would arrive late afternoon and they would often arrive in time for sort of afternoon tea, which was infamous in terms of the volume. You know, they'd have lots of muffins and crumpets and copious pots of tea, which uh, Ginny loved to put brandy in everyone's tea because she preferred brandy to milk, apparently. Right. Um, and the guests would then go to their rooms to get changed and then they would come down and then Stephen would open the cocktail cabinet in the entrance hall and they would all be poured cocktails and then they could go and retire either to the boudoir and chat with Ginny or go to the drawing room and talk with Stephen. And then they often had dinner pretty late. I mean, it would be eight, nine o'clock before dinner was served. And they would all go then and sit in the Art Deco dining room with its lovely aluminium foil ceiling, which reflected the light back onto people's faces. It was a really quite an intimate dining space. And there they had really quite sumptuous meals and particularly Italian style food, because that was what Ginny really loved. And she was very fastidious about the food. She would keep a little notepad and silver pencil next to her on the, at the dinner table. And if there was anything she didn't like, she'd write a note of it to tell the chef. And the wine, of course, was fabulous as well. The Courtaulds had connections in France. They had, you know, wonderful wine cellar stocked with all the very best varieties. So uh, you could be entertained quite royally if you were invited to dinner at Eltham. And then after dinner, of course, they would retire to the uh, Italian drawing room where they often showed cine films of the Courtauld's travels abroad. So you'd be boring rigid all their guests with their home movies. <laughs> I'm getting a sense of a couple who enjoyed themselves, but also spent their entire lives more or less talking about themselves and talking about their travels because that was all they did. So I suppose that was the only subject matter to discuss if it wasn't the sort of variety of subject matter that might be contributed by the variety of guests who were attending and also that the alcohol would be flowing. I get that sense from, from, from even tea time, the alcohol is there and then I suspect by dinner they're probably ready for food because they're probably quite drunk. 
Um, I suspect they would have been, yes. And I mean, you do get a sense that it's very much the sort of playboy lifestyle, isn't it? Where their main topic of conversation is their travels and all the exploits they've been up to because that's what they're spending their time doing. Mm. Um, And also, I think they're feeding off their guests. I mean, we have a a huge variety of different people. I mean, just to run off the sorts of people who are coming to these parties. Yeah, tell us about the names. Yeah, well, I mean, as I said before, Stephen is very closely involved in... He was one of the sort of founders of Ealing Studios, one of the major film studios of the 1930s. And so often amongst the guest list of the dinners would be people from the film industry. So you'd have film directors like Basil Dean and Michael Balkan, who were the mainstays of Ealing Studios, produced a lot of the sort of Ealing comedies of the 1930s and 40s. And also you had film stars like Gracie Fields and George Formby, people who were working regularly on these films. And also... I mentioned before about Stephen's interest in Arctic exploration. So he had lots of sort of daring do type explorers, people like Freddie Spencer Chapman, who in some senses is seen as maybe a model for James Bond. He was extremely sort of brave and dashing hero who sort of was a mountaineer who climbed many mountains in the Himalayas for the first time. He was also an Arctic explorer and he went behind enemy lines in Malaya during the Second World War and was training up native tribes to attack the Japanese and this sort of thing. So, you know, an extremely dashing character. So people like him and also August Courtauld, who was Stephen's own cousin, who was part of the British Arctic Air Route Expedition, which was something that Stephen had sponsored. They went up to Greenland on the ice cap and camped upon the ice cap to get meteorological records. And August Courtauld stayed on the ice cap alone for four months and was entombed under the ice with all the snow coming down on top of him. And when they came to rescue him, he was heavily bearded and he was down to his last jerry can of petrol for his heater in his tent and was rescued just in time as he was uh, about to succumb to the elements. So people like that were regular visitors. But also they had politicians like Rab Butler, who was married to one of Stephen's nieces, Leo Amory, who was a fellow mountaineer and also a conservative government minister. You had people like John Gilmore, who was assistant director at Kew Gardens because of Stephen's interest in botany. Also, Sir Malcolm Sargent, the conductor. Evelyn Shaw, who was honorary secretary of the British School at Rome because of Stephen's interest in archaeology. Celia and Paget, the architects, were regular visitors too. And the racing driver, Freddie Duke of Richmond. So it's a really eclectic mix of people. Some of them old aristocracy, some of them up-and-coming people from various different backgrounds, but all of them shared some sort of interest with Stephen and Ginny, and that's why they were part of their social circle. It's almost that question that you sometimes get asked as a conversation starter at parties, which is, if you could invite anyone to a dinner party, alive or dead, who would they be? And basically, they had the pick. They certainly did. You get a sense that their social circle was very broad, and it was very inclusive. It wasn't socially select in the way that some social circles were. They really did extend across a whole range of different people. If anything could be said, they probably didn't have many members of the traditional ruling classes amongst their groups of friends, possibly because they were seen as being new money rather than old. But uh, other than that, I think they were they were very much part of that elite. I mean, if they were around today, I'm sure they would have been on the pages of Hello magazine every week. Yes, definitely. Let's talk a bit about some of the activities that the guests might have been up to when they were visiting, perhaps staying for a long weekend. Some of the things that the courtholds would have been showing off in the grounds and inside the house. Mm. What some of the items, are we talking about art? Do they have exotic pets, that sort of thing? When guests stayed over, they would have often stayed for the whole weekend. And during that time, much of the time, because it was usually the summer, would have been spent out of doors. And the Courtauld's were very much sort of active people. They liked to get out and get involved in 
you know, they had tennis courts at Eltham, so there were people often out on the tennis court. There was also a swimming pool there, so they could have gone and had a dip in the pool. Or you could walk around the grounds. There was a squash court, which was just next to the Great Hall. Uh, and also the guests were often roped in to help with the gardening. They'd be given a pair of shears or an, 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 um, bucket and spade and told to go out and start doing some gardening. One guest actually mentioned in, a, in in their interview, when they were interviewed many years later, that they were quite exhausted by the end of a trip to Eltham. You know, there'd been all this sort of dining and staying up late and entertaining and, and such a lot of hard physical work during the day as well. It was quite an experience. And regarding the animals on site, presumably there was no local wildlife, but there might have been, I presume, with all that money sloshing around, some interesting pets from far-flung corners of the world. There were indeed. I mean, the the most infamous of their pets, of course, is Marjong, the ring-tailed lemur, who was a wedding present uh, from Stephen to Ginny. He bought Marjong at the pets department at Harrods. And Marjong, really, he was really king of the castle. He had his own heated cage on the first floor of the house, which had a, a mural recreating the bamboo forest he would have been familiar with in Madagascar. And then there was a ladder leading down from his heated cage, which gave him access, really, to all areas of the building. He had the run of the house, and he's known to have bitten a number of house guests, sometimes under the table at dinner. So while you were sitting there enjoying your meal, you could suddenly get a nip on the ankle. And then you might see this sort of black and white tail just sort of darting off somewhere, I suppose. Yes, I bet you. Yeah, I guess you could have done. Yes, and I, I imagine it must have been quite unnerving. I mean, some people call him that dreadful lemur. Well, I can imagine he was uh, not universally liked. Although there's several pictures showing Ginny with the lemur perched on her shoulder or sitting on her lap. You know, it was clearly quite tame for people who he liked. But he wasn't the only pet. They also had a number of very large dogs. They had the most famous probably is Caesar the Great Dane, who was known for regularly bounding over the fence disappearing off to the local butchers and stealing a string of sausages. And it got to the stage where Ginny would actually, when she'd be sent a bill from the butchers, she would just pay it without even asking a question because she knew it was Caesar who'd been stealing the sausages again. And they also had an Afghan hound called Kais and uh, a giant poodle called Solfo. So lots of large dogs around. And there was a pet parrot called Congo who could mimic Stephen on the telephone, answering the telephone. <laughs> uh, and they had black swans, Patagonian swans in the, uh, in, the, in the moat. So, yeah, a whole range of different animals there. It was quite a menagerie. It's really, really colourful up until the point, of course. And the serious point is the outbreak of the Second World War, where things get a bit darker, I suppose. Was this the beginning of the end of the Courtauld's colourful life as globetrotters and party hosts there? Well, I mean, in a sense, it was the end of their globetrotting because they couldn't travel overseas any longer. But it wasn't the end of their entertaining. Right at the beginning of the war, I mean, Ginny is just someone who loves company. She just doesn't like to be on her own. So she invited the whole extended court old family, so all Stephen's brothers and sisters and all their cousins and whatever, to come and stay with them at Eltham. The excuse being that it would save them money of heating and fueling their own properties. And this became known as the experiment. And it didn't sadly prove to be a success because all the women started bickering. They were complaining about garlic in the food that Ginny liked. They're complaining about the lack of heating because Ginny thought it'd be unpatriotic to heat the house and the tepid water. And also Ginny didn't like children. She made them all be banished to the servants' quarters. They weren't allowed in the rest of the house. So it was all a bit of a disaster. And after six months, they all up sticks and went home again. It sounds as though relations were souring a little bit with everyone under the roof at the same time. When did the extended family start to leave and go back to their own homes? Probably would have been the early part of 1940 because they were only there for six months. But 
having said that, there were guests throughout the war period. The Courtauld's did have a number of people staying with them. There was a number of letters I've seen. Ginny is sort of saying, oh, please do come and stay with us. We've got plenty of food and fuel and, you know, we've got all these guest bedrooms. You know, we'd love to see you. And so she did have a number of house guests, including Rab Butler, who, as I said before, was married to Stephen's niece. And he was the Minister of Education during the war and so needed to be in central London or to be able to access central London. And when he was bombed out of his own London residence, he came to stay at Eltham and he was there for a majority of the wartime period and it was there while he was at Eltham that he wrote much of his 1944 Education Act and there's some notes in uh, Rab Butler's journal that talks about Stephen commenting on early drafts of the bill and suggesting changes so Stephen was can have some sort of role in the development of the education system post-war. Also, another of Stephen's cousins, George Courtauld, was head of personnel for the Special Operations Executive, the Secret Service, and he lived at Eltham during much of the war, and it's thought that he maybe used Eltham as a safe house for testing out potential candidates for SOE. Stephen would invite people to Eltham for dinner so they could be sized up to see if they were be the right sort of stuff to be in the Secret Service. And other of Stephen's friends like Eilif Cousins and Freddie Spencer Chapman, some of his friends from the Arctic exploration days, they were working in the military in London and they came and stayed over when they were seconded to London. So they were there too. And Ginny joined the Women's Voluntary Service and she rose up to be sort of area commander for Eltham. And several of the women working alongside her, like Rosalie Doyle Davidson, came to stay at Eltham too. So they had a good sequence of six, seven, eight people staying at Eltham with them pretty much the whole time during the war. And during air raids, they would all retreat down to the basement area where they had a very luxurious air raid shelter, two rooms kitted out with bunks, and they even had a billiard table down there so they could entertain themselves. So I don't think they had too difficult a time of it. Did the palace at all suffer any physical damage from bombing during the Blitz? It was in September 1940. There was a major air raid over the area where 100 incendiary bombs landed on the estate and several of those struck the roof of the great hall and set it on fire and Stephen was amongst the fire watchers actually on duty that night and helped put out the blaze and avoid serious damage but there was a hole created in the roof which had to be patched up with tarpaulins for a period before it could be properly fixed and then later in the war in 1941 in the spring of 1941 a parachute mine exploded nearby and smashed lots of the windows in the palace and it also smashed the windows of Stephen's greenhouses so that all his orchids had to be spirited away and taken down to Sussex where the former head gardener James Blackman had a nursery and a few of the more rare ones were taken to Kew Gardens so uh, Stephen was very much uh, you know, wanting to preserve those so he had to sort of get those taken away uh, after his greenhouses were damaged. Let's fast forward a bit through time through World War II then and when did the Courtaulds leave Elton Palace? Well, they left in the autumn of 1944. I think by this point they were getting just a bit sick of the constant air raids and and I think by this point you're getting into the V1s and V2s uh, attacks on London. So they decided they'd had enough of London life at this point and they up sticks and moved to Scotland where they bought a 24,000 acre estate in Argyll called McCann and they stayed there for a number of years until the early 1950s when Ginny was finding the cold weather there a bit much so they moved again then to southern Rhodesia and they built themselves a new house down there called La Rochelle hmm. uh, a place called near Umtali in southern Rhodesia and that was uh, in itself a, a fascinating 
looking modern building built a bit like a French chateau with really nice art deco interiors. Is Rhodesia modern day Zimbabwe? Is that right? It is indeed, yes. Southern Rhodesia is modern day Zimbabwe. So it's still there now. It's looked after by the National Trust for Zimbabwe, looks after it and opens it up as a hotel. So you can actually go and stay in Stephen and Virginia Courtauld's former residence. But what happened was when they left, Stephen offered up the remainder of the lease at Eltham to the Royal Army Educational Corps. And this was a suggestion of his friend, Rab Butler, who'd said, why don't you use this for educational purposes? Because Stephen was very interested in education, particularly army education. And so Eltham then served as a base for the Army Educational Corps from 1945 right through till 1992. And the army looked after it very well. But when they came to leave in the 1990s, it was passed over to English Heritage, who began a programme of restoration, so that by the mid-1990s they were able to open it to the public for the first time, and so uh, visitors were able to see these uh, fabulous interiors return to something like their 1930s heyday. What is the greatest legacy of this whole story? We have so many changes, so many layers of time, so many different features that would have come and gone. What's the greatest legacy of Elton Palace, do you think? Well, in my opinion, it's the Courtauld's fabulous house and its Art Deco interiors. I mean, there are some amazing 1930s interiors which really aren't surpassed anywhere else in this country. And alongside that, this amazing technology, which some of it would appear luxurious even today, you know, the sort of underfloor heating, the stereo speakers around the house to allow um, piped music throughout the building, the sort of things that you you only get in luxury homes today, and they had them in the 1930s. It, it's astounding the level of sophistication that visitors must have come across when they were there. Yes, out of the collection of English heritage properties, would this one be one of the rare ones with a, an Art Deco 1930s theme? It's our only uh, 1930s era property, and it's one of the few properties of this period that's open to the public that I know of. I mean, there probably are others, but I'm not aware of any on this scale and of this sort of level of magnificence. I mean, you had to forget the Courtauld's were probably some of the wealthiest people in the country at the time. There weren't many people who had the resources to be able to build and furnish a house of this style. What happened to the Courtauld's themselves then? Because obviously the, the story of the house continues through English heritage's care, but the Courtauld's themselves, what happens to them? They stayed in southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, until Stephen died in the, I think it was the early 1960s. And then Ginny moved in with relatives on the island of Jersey, and she died there in the 1960s as well. But they had no children, and that was the sort of end of that family line, really. I mean, they had two nephews, Peter and Paul Pirano, who they'd been looking after. And Paul Pirano died during the Second World War. Peter survived and his family now live in France but in terms of the family themselves yeah that was the end of the line really. Lastly Andrew what do you think English Heritage will be doing in the future regarding Elton Palace and telling the story? I think we're very keen to keep telling the stories and the, and all these fabulous tales about Eltham. And I know we have a, a storytelling initiative we're working on at the moment, which is involving training up volunteers to pass on some of these fascinating anecdotes to visitors when they come to Eltham. And I'm sure that's something we're going to do more of, including you know, maybe some costume storytellers, people in costume, maybe the 1930s, talking about what it was like to be at Eltham. 
because it's trying to transport people back to that period. It's such a fascinating period. We already do things like having 1930s style dances and having um, jazz bands playing in the Great Hall and that sort of thing. And that always goes down really well. I think people love that 1930s decadence. It's that sort of period, isn't it, before the privations of war when uh, everything was starting to sort of become much more social. And I think our visitors love seeing that. It's something which is just sort of on the fringes of being in living memory. So there are one or two people around still today who still remember Elton from that time. It's a fascinating period. It's one that I really enjoy. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more details about Elton Palace and the Courtauld's lives there, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, we take a close look at fine art conservation with expert Rachel Turnbull. Thanks for listening. See you next time.